We're going to turn to God's Word now, and so if you have a Bible, whether paper or on your phone, can I ask you to turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, a well-known story, but we're going to read it together and uh, focus on the first half of 2 Kings 5 from uh, verse 1 to verse 17, we'll read. This is God's Word. Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Verse 2. Now the Syrians in one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure, to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Verse 8, 2 Kings 5, 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. Amen. And we're finishing there. 
Well, it was Shakespeare that said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And tonight, whenever we turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, we have a stage and we have various players on that stage. And we really have uh, a drama of four scenes. And I want to try and introduce this drama of four scenes in 2 Kings chapter 5 to you by telling you a true story. It's about a politician, this story. It's maybe a name that you don't know, but you can go home and Google him. You can go home and YouTube him and you'll find the story to be true. It's about a man called Tim Farron. And Tim Farron was a, a politician in some of the past parliaments. He was the leader of the Liberal Democrats from 2015 to 2017. And Tim Farron is a committed Christian. If you go onto YouTube, you can listen to Tim Farron's speech a year ago now at the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And he spoke very powerfully about Queen Elizabeth's strong Christian faith. How did Tim Farron get saved? Well, I'll let you tell me that. How did Tim Farron get saved? Tim Farron tells his story like this. He remembers being a small boy in the 70s, mid-70s. I think his mother and father had split up at this point. His mother was a very educated lady. She was a university professor. And he says that they were living in an old farmhouse in Yorkshire. There was his mum, there was his sister, and there was him. And he said his mum put him to bed one night, about 1976, and he was nine years of age. And he wasn't brought up in a Christian home. His mother wasn't a believer. He didn't go to church, didn't go to Sunday school. That just wasn't on the radar. And his mum was a very social lady and her friends would sometimes come round. And he said that lying in his bed that night, he could hear his mum talking through the old farmhouse wall in the kitchen next door. And as he listened to his mum speaking, he also heard the voice of his mum's friend. He knew her voice. And then there was another voice in the kitchen that night, a man's voice, a man's voice that he didn't know. And as he said that as he was lying in his bed as a nine-year-old, he heard that man say in the midst of this conversation very clearly, you have to ask Jesus into your heart. And he said whenever he heard that, it was so clear that it just seemed to be speaking to him. And so he closed his eyes and he prayed, he said, Jesus, come into my heart. I don't even think he would have known what a prayer was, but he said it anyway. Tim Farron went to university at Newcastle. When he was an 18-year-old, he arrived in the university hall. The first people that came to speak to him in that university hall were Christians. And there were two Christians come up to him. And both of them said they were going to the CU. And they invited him to go to the CU. And it was when he went to the Christian Union as an 18-year-old, he heard the gospel. He heard it really clearly. And it was there in repentance and faith that he was sure where he stood with the Lord. But let me ask you the question, when did God start moving in Tim Farron's life? When did God start working in Tim Farron's life? Was it at that university when he was 18 or was it when he was a nine-year-old? See, God works in incredible ways. And if you were to ask me, I believe God started working in Tim Farron's life as a nine-year-old when he heard just through the wall somebody saying, you have to ask Jesus into your heart. Well, let's pull back the curtain here in 2 Kings chapter 5 and let's look at this drama. And we have a, a character who walks onto the stage in 2 Kings chapter 5 and he is a hugely impressive man. And he's a Syrian and we're given his name there. His name is Naaman. It confronts you in verse 1, we're told, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. 
And if you were to go back in history, this is the time when Syria, it's in the same geographical location as it is today, if you look at our map. Today, Syria is ruled by Bashar al-Assad. We were praying for it. But Syria is in the same place today as it was then. And this is the zenith. This is the pinnacle of the, the Syrian military might. And Naaman is the commander of the army of the king of Syria. This man would have had a long and distinguished military career. He would have made it to the very top of the chain of command. We know that this man is able. He's capable. We know he's a capable soldier. And we know that he's a very respected soldier. This man's orders weren't just obeyed because they were orders. This man's orders were obeyed. And I think there's a degree of affection and love for him because we're told that this was a great man with his master and high in favor. The king thought a lot about Naaman. Do you remember whenever you read through the stories of Saul and David in 1 Kings 17 and 18, you read about them singing songs about Saul and David. Well, I imagine all the Syrian children, the wee boys wouldn't have had Messi and Ronaldo in their bedroom walls. They would have had a poster of Naaman. This would have been the man that they wanted to be like. This is the man that they wanted to grow up and follow. I mean, we have our great British military heroes, don't we? We think of Montgomery at Al Alamein. We think of Wellington at Waterloo. We think of Nelson at uh, the Battle of Trafalgar. But they had Naaman. He was their great military hero. And we're told by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. We're told he was a mighty man of valor. What's the highest military award you can get in the British military? The Victoria Cross. And how do you receive the Victoria Cross? Will you receive the Victoria Cross for valor in the face of the enemy? They don't hand out the Victoria Cross like smarties since the end of World War II, which is 78 years ago. You think of all the conflicts that the British Army has been involved in. How many Victoria Crosses have been given out in the last, in the last 78 years? 15 Whenever you receive a Victoria Cross and they pin that honor on you, and there's been 15 of them, it says in the Victoria Cross just two words, for valor. Some daring or bravery in the face of the enemy. And Naaman was such a man. This is a brave man. This was a capable soldier. This was a well-respected soldier. And if you were to go through Naaman's CV, everybody thought a lot of Naaman. But right at the end of Naaman's CV, there's something that casts a shadow over his whole life. I mean, we have it in the English here, and it's set up to read, a mighty man of valor, and then it says in the English, but, but in the Hebrew, there's no but. It just says in the Hebrew, a mighty man of valor, a leper. You're supposed to read all this man's accomplishments. You're supposed to read all of this man's CV over this dark cloud over his life. He's leprosy. He's clinically diagnosed as a leper. We often think that change happens over time. But things change in just an instant, don't they? It's a phone call. It's a visit to the doctor. It's a surprise that comes upon you. And then everything changes. And you can imagine this man, Naaman. He wakes up one morning and there's an itch. You know, there's like a rash in his hand or maybe on his ear. And he speaks to his wife, what is that? And she says, look, would you stop complaining? Just get on with it. It'll go away in a day or two. And, and then it's still annoying him. He goes back to her a week later. And she says, well, go and see the doctor. And he sees the doctor. And he says, well, I don't know what it is. And then he goes to a dermatologist. And it's really annoying him now. But this is a man that doors open to. And this is a man that went to the best dermatologist, the best consultants, and the Ulster Clinic, or Knightsbridge. Money was no object. And then he got the diagnosis. 
I'm sorry, Naaman, to tell you this, but it's leprosy. You ever met anybody with leprosy? Nearly ten, over 10 years ago, I was in Nepal. I was in this place called Pokhara in the north of Nepal. Whenever we arrived in Pokhara, we were going to do a walk around some of the Himalayas, but they told me in Pokhara there was a leprosy hospital. I'm like, man, I have you been brought up in church, and I read all the stories in the Bible. Remember as a boy or a girl of Jesus healing lepers, and I tell you, I wanted to go to that leprosy hospital. So I just walked to the leprosy hospital. They allowed me into the male ward, and you just walked around. Men missing noses, fingers. It's a terrible stench with leprosy. Leprosy doesn't mean that bits of your body fall off, but leprosy brings about this numbness in your body, this lack of sensitivity, that you don't feel things, you don't feel you've cut yourself, you're not sensitive to you've burnt yourself, and so things start to rot, and you don't realize it, and that's why things fall off. And leprosy is a horrible disease. It used to be thought that leprosy was passed because of human contact. And so if you got leprosy, you were separated from people. That's why they kept you at a distance. That's why there were leper colonies, because they thought it was passed on by human touch. And leprosy disfigures. It takes what's beautiful and it makes it ugly. Leprosy separates. It breaks off families and communities. And leprosy destroys and it sickens. And Naaman... Well, Naaman was clinically diagnosed as a leper. He had leprosy. But there's more in this passage than just that. Leprosy also functions as a, as a type for us in the Bible. Now, listen really carefully to what I'm telling you here. Leprosy functions as a type and explaining what sin is like to us. Now, I'm not saying that all lepers receive their leprosy because of sin. I'm not saying that. But leprosy works as a type or a picture of sin. You know, the same way that leprosy takes what's beautiful and twists it and makes it ugly and it separates and it spreads. That's exactly how sin operates. Sin takes what's beautiful, takes a beautiful marriage and it destroys it. Sin takes friendships and work relationships and it just tears them to pieces. Sin separates and it breaks relationship and sin spreads really quietly and you don't realize it. And here in this passage, 2 Kings chapter 5, we're reading about Naaman's cleansing. We're reading about Naaman's healing, but we're reading about Naaman's, not just his physical leprosy, but his spiritual leprosy. And the first scene in this act in 2 Kings 5, we meet Naaman. Then we go into our second scene. And this is one of the most moving scenes in the Bible. In the second scene of 2 Kings chapter 5, we meet a little girl. And in this very moving scene, this little girl speaks to her mistress about her husband. 2 Kings 5, 3. This little girl speaks up. I tried to understand what age would this little girl have been. And this little girl would maybe have been seven or eight. She wasn't old enough to get married. That's the word that was used in the Hebrew. It's not the word for someone who'd be uh, able to be betrothed. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. She speaks about Elisha. She's the only one in this passage to speak about the true and living God. I would say to you young people, it's great to see you at church. Don't think that you're too young to serve the Lord. Whenever you're trying to witness to somebody, you don't have to dump on them the whole book of Romans. I mean, there's, there seems to be this going around more and more. You know, I don't have to tell anybody the gospel. I just have to live a good life and they'll see it. 
No, you have to say something. Somebody has to say something. And in this passage, this little girl says something. She says, I would like my master to go and meet the prophet, the prophet of God. Just go to him. The thing about this, we've just watched in the news the last couple of days, this war that's breaking out in, in Israel, haven't we? And one of the shocking things in those um, those news reports, it is that a hundred people have been captured. And in 2 Kings 5, we can relate to that. Because what happened that this little girl ended up in Syria? Well, she was trafficked. The Syrian soldiers crossed the border. And what did they do? They took prisoners. And one of the easiest packages to lift is just a little girl. It says there in verse 2, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the, na- the service of Naaman's wife. I mean, you can just picture the scene, can't you? I mean, this little girl's with her mum on a Saturday and her, her mum's baking an apple tart and the wee girl says, look, mummy, would you help me with my times tables? Would you help me with my reading? And her mum says, look, would you just let me get this in the oven and then I'll, you go outside for a minute, go out and play and then come back in in half an hour. And she goes out and she's playing in the dirt. They never hear of her again. Let me ask you a question. Do you think her father ever laughed again? Do you think this wee girl's mother ever went to bed without weeping? Do you think there was ever a morning where they woke up and they didn't think about their little girl who was there one moment and then just gone? Do you think their lives were ever the same? Now the parents grew up during the days of Elijah and the days of Elijah there weren't very many Christians about. But what did these parents do for their child? I mean I heard Mark Twain say, Mark Twain said, before I had any children I had four theories of parenting but after I had four children I had no theories of parenting. So I can't give you my theory of parenting but I can tell you this here that these parents brought up their child to knowing the God that saves. They didn't think to themselves, you know what? I'm going to wait until she's old enough and then she'll make her own decisions. I'm going to let her reach the age of 18 and then I'll say, come along to church. What did these parents do with their little girl? They told her the gospel. They told her the good news of Jesus Christ. Did they send her to Sunday school? You're dead right, they sent her to Sunday school. Did they pray for their little girl? You can be sure they prayed for her. Did they try and teach her the Bible? They taught her the Bible. What influence did they want to be in their child? They wanted their child, their little girl, to grow up trusting in God. And they viewed that as a priority. Let me speak to you here in Bucknow. What about the children in your church? I can tell you, if I was to describe the children in your congregation in one word, the word that I would pick would be bright. Bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I mean, as I was down there at the front this morning, especially the wee girls, I'm telling you, they missed nothing. Did you hear them? I mean, I did a children's address back in July, and they remembered it. They remembered the bag was lost. They missed absolutely nothing. Oh, how many were there? I counted them. I think I got the 23, then up to 27. What are their names? Do you know their names? Do you pray for them? I'm sure, do you pray for them? I mean, we're Presbyterians and we have great privileges. And one of the things that we do as Presbyterians is we make vows. You stand whenever Stephen does a baptism and you stand for that because you're making a vow between you and God. And you say that you will so order your congregational life and witness that those children will be brought up, not just to know about the gospel, but to know the gospel. So do you keep your vows? Stephen Kennedy told me a shocking thing when I met him just after church. He told me that in Ballymena Presbytery, in the last, I think it was three or four years, there's not been one ministry student. There's not one preacher in the Presbyterian church come forward out of Ballymena Presbytery. I mean, Ballymena Presbytery is supposed to be at the top. 
Why is that? I've just finished doing my studies. Do you want me to tell you what the problem has been in Ireland for the last 500 years? Ireland, the Reformation came to Ireland in 1537 when Henry VIII decided that Ireland was going to be Protestant, that they were going to move away from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm not trying to get into labels here, and I use those labels in the theological sense, not in any political sense. And the great need in Ireland from 1537 was what? Why did the Reformation not take hold of all of Ireland? Why did it not take hold? I'll tell you why. Because there were no preachers. There were no preachers. What's been the great need in Ireland for the last 500 years that people would go out and preach the gospel? And why is the church not advanced in the south of Ireland? Why is it not advanced for the last 500 years? Because they don't have preachers. They never had preachers. In England, they had preachers. In Scotland, they had preachers. In Wales, they had preachers. But in Ireland, they didn't have preachers. And we can go back to the plantation of Ulster in the 1600s where the preachers came over from Scotland and they preached the gospel. And yet here in Ballymena Presbury in 2023, there's not one, not one out of all the huge churches in this area, not one is going forward as a preacher of the gospel. There's something not right there. There's something not right. Are we praying for these young people? Are we praying that they'll grow up? I can tell you without fear of rebuke, the reason that I'm standing in this pulpit and the reason my younger brothers are preachers as well is because men and women in Castle Dawson and Kern and Drumbo and Drumrea prayed for us. I remember as a wee boy, daddy went out to the prayer meeting and we went to the prayer meeting, not because we were, knew anything about prayer, we just wanted to know where he was going. And we went to that prayer meeting and we just sat with our eyes opened and all those old men came in, about, they were about 210 by the time we saw them, they were ancient. And they, we came in and we sat there and those men prayed. And I can tell you what they prayed, they said, dear Lord, we want to pray for Samuel and Andrew and John and we want to pray that they'll be soul winners and missionaries for you. And as I stand before you tonight, it's because of those men and women that prayed for us when we were wee boys and prayed that we would grow up trusting the Lord and pray that we would serve the Lord. And so I asked you, do you pray for your children? Do you pray for your children in this congregation? Do you pray for them? They're maybe not yours, but they may be sitting in the seat in front of you. Do you pray for them? Because here in 2 Kings chapter 5, what do we have? We have a little girl, just a little girl, and her mother and father must have buried the gospel into her heart at a very young age because whenever she grew up, she was looking to this God. I mean, just think about it. Think of the terror that night. I mean, she's out and she's playing and somebody comes along and puts a bag over her head, puts a gag in her mouth, ties her up and throws her over a horse. And she's taken across the border and she doesn't know where she is. Can you imagine what she was saying? She's praying, dear God, please get me out of this. Dear God, please get me out of this. God, I'll do anything for you if you get me out of this. Dear God, please get me out of this. God, please help me. God, please help me. God, please answer my prayer. Let me go back to my mom and dad. God, please. And you remember, imagine her praying. And her prayer's not answered. She's in Syria. And if there was ever any child that you would have thought could have grown up hard against God, any child that could have grown up bitter against God, any child that could have grown up resentful against God, it would have been this little girl. You could have said, you know, we would expect you to grow up and you would expect to say that God doesn't answer prayer, that God doesn't love his children, that God doesn't help his people. But what does this little girl do? She grows up and she's the one that's testifying. She's the one that's testifying about God. She's the one that's a missionary here. She's the witness here. And she's the one that was kidnapped. And we're not even told her name. We're not told anything about her. But she witnesses for God and she witnesses for the gospel. And then we have this third scene. Just follow it with me. 
We come into verse 6. Now, desperate people will do desperate things. Money can be tight and you can be struggling, but whenever you're sick, as we say, your health is your wealth, and you'll find money or you'll ask people or you'll borrow money to try and get it, not next week or next month or next year. You want it now. You want to see the doctor now. You want to see the consultant now because you want it sorted out. And that's the way Naaman was. He was prepared to pay, he was prepared to push, and he was prepared to travel. He went to the king, and what did he ask for? He said, I want a letter. He was prepared to do the 132-mile journey down to Israel, and he was prepared to pay his way. I did the math so that you don't have to. Silver today is set 564 pound a kilo. Well, he brought 340 kilos of silver. Gold today is 41,633 pound a kilo. Well, he brought 66 kilos. By my calculation, his silver and gold combined, and the amazing thing is silver was more valuable in that day, is 2.9 million sterling. He turned up in Israel with 2.9 million sterling plus 10 changes of clothes. What did he want? He wanted his health, and he was going to pay for it. But when he turns up in Israel, he goes to the king of Israel, and the king of Israel has a very short memory. He doesn't remember how God has worked, even way back there in chapter 3. And so whenever, whenever Naaman comes, he tears his clothes. But Elisha gets wind of this. Verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me. So he goes down. I, I love this verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and stood at the door of Elisha's house. You can just imagine the delegation. Remember whenever Biden from America was over in, in Ireland not too long ago when he came and there was like, you know, 25 black Cadillacs and there was the big beast Humvee and, you know, the army were everywhere. I was in school in Belfast and I used to love Clinton coming because he just closed off the whole city centre. You missed a morning in school because the whole place was shut off. And unless the BBC reporter, and the BBC reporter commented on that, the BBC said, this is not really needed for security reasons. This long cavalcade of cars and all the city closed off. It's not needed for security reasons. But one of the things that that does is it makes an impression. It says a really important person is coming to town. And here we have Naaman. And whenever Naaman came down, Naaman came with his wealth. He came with his horses. He came with his chariots. Naaman went down as the commander of the armies of the king of Syria. Naaman went down with the delegation. Naaman went down and he was saying, I am a very important person. I am a pretty big deal. And then verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger. I can just imagine Elisha, you know, he's living in a wee house, you know, just under Slamish and there's whitewashed walls and a thatched roof and there's smoke going up the, up the chimney and Elisha's just sitting there on the TV, you know, he's just flicking the channels, you know, he's, he's watching Deal or No Deal with his feet on the table and, you know, somebody says, there's a big delegation outside and he says, well, tell them this message, I'm not even opening the door. Well, how does Naaman react? Well, verse 11, Naaman was angry. And went away saying, Behold, he would sure, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the problem. Now what is Naaman's problem? Well, Naaman's problem is leprosy. But Naaman's a bigger problem than just leprosy. Naaman's biggest problem is his spiritual leprosy. And we get an indication of his spiritual leprosy here in verse 11 because Naaman is not just annoyed. Naaman is just not angry. Naaman is furious. The Hebrew sets it up for us because it says, I expect it to me he would come out. You see, 
The soldiers thought a lot of Naaman. Naaman's servants thought a lot of Naaman. The king thought a lot of Naaman. But you know who else thought a lot of Naaman? Naaman thought a lot of Naaman. What's the leading sin of the heart? What's the leading sin of the heart? There's a leading sin of the heart and a leading sin of the head that you can trace all our other sins back to. They all have a root. And the leading sin of the heart is pride. Whenever I say, I will not have anybody walk over, to, over me, do they know who I am? And what's Naaman's spiritual leprosy here? What's the indication of a sin? Well, it's his pride. Naaman thought an awful lot of himself. There was no way that Naaman was going to go down to Israel as a poor beggar and speak to a prophet. No, Naaman came down with an entourage and Naaman came down to pay his way. You're maybe like that and you'll say, I'll know oh, no, anyone, I'll not know anyone anything. I'll keep my word and I'll pay my own way. Well, that was Naaman. I'll pay my own way. There's nobody I'm going to be in debt to. And he came down as the commander of the army and he thought, look, unless you'll do a magic trick, you know, he'll wave his hand, he'll give me the cure and then I'll go. Naaman came down and he really wanted to have this in his own terms. But what does Elisha do? Well, Elisha speaks to Naaman in such a way that he wants to work in Naaman's life. I don't pretend that I know what God's doing in your life. I don't. And it would be wrong of me even to think that. But whenever God's working in our lives... Whenever God wants to work in our lives, one of the things that he does frequently is he humbles us. And how does he humble us? Well, he humbles us by giving us a humbling. And that's what Elisha does to Naaman here. He humbles him. Naaman came down with all his entourage and said, I want you to do as I tell you. But Elisha said, you're not going to come to God in your terms. You'll come to God in his terms. You're not bigger than God's prophet. You're not bigger than God's land. And if you're going to come to God, you'll come his way. And what did Elisha say to Naaman? He said, go and wash in the Jordan seven times. Now, we know that that's rich in meaning for us. I mean, what was the Jordan River? Well, do you remember whenever God's people left the land of Egypt and they went across the wilderness? Where was the boundary that said, you're now entering into the promised land? Well, it was the River Jordan. Whenever they crossed the River Jordan, that was God's people going into God's land. And Naaman was being told, you're to identify as one of God's people. You're to be like a spiritual Israelite. And you're also to get into the Jordan. And then the number seven. Well, we know what the number seven in the Bible means. It means it's a, a complete number. It's a perfect number. It's a whole number. And unless you're really saying to Naaman, Naaman... You need a cleansing, but you need a complete cleansing. You need a whole cleansing. You need a total cleansing, not just a physical cleansing, but you need a spiritual cleansing. And whenever Naaman hears this, he says, it's too much. It's too much. I'll not do it. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not yet saved. And you've heard the gospel preached faithfully from this pulpit many times. And your response is, no, I'll not do that. If I'm to come in God, it'll be in my terms, but there's no way I'm going to come to God in his terms. I just imagine it like this. If you had to pay to get to heaven, how much would you be prepared to pay? You'd probably pay everything. If you had to lose a limb to get to heaven, would you give up a limb? Yes, you would. 
but you're not asked to pay or, or give up a limb. You're asked to come in repentance and faith. And whenever Naaman hears the gospel, he says, no, I'll come on my terms. Now, we're not told the time period here, but we're told that the servants come near again to Naaman. We're not told their names, and they say, my father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? You've heard the gospel many times. Maybe you're watching online and you've heard the gospel again. Will you not just trust in Jesus? I mean, what are you putting off? What are you holding back for? What's so difficult about the gospel that you can't understand? You're a great sinner, but Jesus Christ is a greater savior. What is it you want to hold on to, which is so much more valuable than the riches that Christ would give you? So I would come to you like one of the servants here and say, my friend, it is a great word that God has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Now, we're not told how long Naaman thought about it or how long he spent thought, thinking about it. But Naaman got off his horse. You could even say he got off his high horse. He went down to the River Jordan, and I'm sure whenever he took his clothes off and got on into the river, he felt like an idiot. The first time he went down, he felt like a fool, and the second time he felt like a, he, he said, I'm an idiot. The third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth. And each time he went down into the river. And then the seventh time he went down into the river. He went down into the river Jordan. And when he came out of the river Jordan. He came out a different man than he went in. Now there's a few wee words there that I want to point out to you in verse 14. A few words that we could maybe skate over. But let's look at them. It says, so he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. According to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored. But then look at what it says next. His flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Maybe you'll call to see Judah Kennedy this week, just a little child, flawless and perfect, a baby. And you would think to yourself, well, look, that's a natural enough comparison. Naaman's skin is now perfect again. But what, what if the author of 2 Kings 5 is telling us more? What if the author of 2 Kings 5 is saying that whenever Naaman came out of that water, it was almost like he was born again? Maybe whenever Naaman came out of that water, to say his skin was like the flesh of a little child, it's like he's coming into this world like a child, not just physically, but spiritually. See, Naaman came out of that water a different man than he went in. And how do I know that? Maybe you're thinking, well, look, Andrew, you're, you're twisting this a bit. How do we know this? There's an old missionary, he died during the time of the pandemic, called Bob McAllister. You ever had, heard Bob? You should go online and listen to his testimony. He was a powerful man of God in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s in the Congo. Bob said this, whenever I lead somebody to the Lord, I pray two prayers with them. If somebody came to me and said, I want to be saved, Bob says, well, we'll get down on our knees and we'll pray a prayer. And the prayer that we'll pray, first of all, is a prayer of repentance and faith. And then whenever we've finished that prayer, I'll turn to the person and I'll say, right, now we're going to pray a second prayer. And that second prayer we pray is a prayer of thankfulness. We're thankful for what the Lord's done. Because you're now a new creation. Well, just look what happens here. Whenever Naaman came out of that water, what could he have done? He could have just kept on going back to Syria. I mean, the leprosy was gone. But what does he do here? Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know there is no God on all the earth but Israel. He professed his faith. But then he said, So accept now a present from your servant. And he urges him to take a present. Why did he do that? Because he was thankful. 
He's thankful for what the Lord had done. And that's a sign the Lord had saved him. Do you remember that story in Luke 17? Do you remember the story of Jesus and the ten lepers? Do you remember that story? And there's ten lepers and they shout out to Jesus, Jesus, we want you to heal us. And what does Jesus do in that story? Jesus heals all ten. But how many of those lepers came back to say thank you to Jesus? There was one leper, wasn't it? And what was the significance of that one leper coming back to Jesus and saying thank you? All ten had received a physical healing, but there's one of them received a spiritual cleansing. One of them received salvation. And that was the one that came back and said thank you. And who was that one? Well, that was the foreigner. And here what do we have in 2 Kings 5? A foreigner is saved. A foreigner is amazingly saved. And what does this foreigner do? He comes back and he says, thank you. Thank you for saving me. So let me speak to you. Are you grateful for all that God has done for you? Are you a different person now? Are you a different person than before you were saved? Is God working in your life and he's so grateful for all that he's done? Let's bow our heads and let's give thanks now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we think of the, the soldier who sent word to Jesus that he wanted Jesus to come and, and heal his servant, and that was a foreign soldier. And that soldier said, just say the word, Jesus, and it will be done. And Father, here tonight in 2 Kings 5, we find another foreign soldier. And he eventually took you at your word, and he was saved. And he was grateful for it. And so, Father, as we are here tonight, we ask that we would take you at your word and that we would know your salvation through Jesus Christ and we would be thankful for it. Father, we're delighted to see the young people in church. We're so thrilled to see nearly 30 of them at the front this morning and others scattered throughout the church. We're delighted to see these young people at church tonight and for every home that's represented. And Father, it's our prayer that they would grow up trusting in Jesus as their Savior and King and serving Him as missionaries and soul winners. We're asking, Father, that they would grow up and they would delight in the gospel and be thankful for the gospel. And Father, for us who are a little bit older, who profess to know you, we ask that we would be so grateful and so thankful for all that you have done for us, that that would just flow out of our lips, that people would say there's something different about you. You keep talking about the Lord and what he's done in your life. And that would impact people, that we would have the opportunity just to say a word, because we don't know what you can do with just a word or two. Father, we don't know how you'll work in this area, but we cry that you will work in our hearts and our lives and our family and in our church and from a little, Lord, that you'd bring about a lot. So, Father, we thank you for how you saved the foreigner Naaman in 2 Kings 5, and we ask that you would save people even this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.